Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 17th episode from the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with the fabulous fraternal pop group, the Bee Gees. In 1989, when they released their 18th studio album, which was entitled One. Before I spoke to the eldest brother, Barry Gibb, I talked to the twins, Morris and Robin Gibb. Hey Robin, if I ask you first, you've got a, a new album out. What kind of an album is it? How would you describe it exactly? Well, it's more soul-inflected uh, than the last few albums. ESP was the kind of uh, start of it. I mean, we've always done soul, soul albums and soul records, right back to main course. But um, in the last few years, of course, we've been writing and producing other artists, like mm. Chain Reaction for Diana Ross and Kenny Rogers and people like that. And uh, we've always had... Uh, a sort of foundation in black music and especially Tamla music and soul music and we just uh, decided that we wanted to make more out of it on this album. Mm. Morris, the first single in this country is Ordinary Lives, yes. um, what's the story behind that one? Well it's uh, it's basically talking about, two, a lot of people think we're talking about ourselves but we're not, it's, uh, if you listen to the lyrics carefully enough it's uh, Actually, Robin described this rather well. You said it the other day, the storyline, which was well, right on the nail. It's a love story, actually. It's about yeah. two people who are in love with each other, but they come from different backgrounds, mm. and they are being kept apart by their peers or society or their parents. And they I mean, it could be a, a black-and-white relationship. It can be a... Religious a, a, differences. Yeah, oriental relationship with someone else, and people are just not accepting it, so, but we're just uh, ordinary people. Oriental and people. Oriental people living oriental yeah, lives. Yeah, But it can, and they have to go underground in order to, to, to survive. And I don't mean literally underground, but they have to hide. But they become a stigma rather than a, a loving couple. Your second single in this country is One, and it's going to be released in the States as the first single over yes. there. Is that because you reckon it's more suited to an American yeah. audience? Well, it is, it, besides that point, but also we wanted it to go with the album in America at the same time. And we wanted yeah. the title track. The reaction the from America was also. The reaction yeah. from America was also when they first heard One, and they said, that's a smash, it's got to be the first one. So it wasn't really down. I mean, we agreed with them, and we think it is. And everybody here is saying the same thing, so it seems to be pretty... Yeah, unanimous that everybody wants one in in, the, in America or in England for that matter. When you're working with your record companies, it, it's not just it has to be the song, of course, first that you know that everybody wants to go with. And if you have that support with you, because it's not just you that makes the record a success. You've got to have the record company behind you, and they're all for it, and all those ingredients help to make the record a success. And rather than um, not do what they wanted to do, we wanted to release something entirely different. You know, they may get the needle, or people just go, well, that's all right, but, you know, I really think we should go with this one. So we know they know about their side of the business, and, hell, let's go with them, you know, if they think that's right. You know, but we usually know beforehand, I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have written the songs, that one should be the first single in America. And also being the title of the album, we all wanted the package to be the same. What other singles do you reckon could come out of this album? Well, the, the tremendous radio action we've had here from places like Radio 1 have been that we have six major records of this album and uh, that's outside of Ordinary Lives and that's uh, they mentioned uh, One Bodyguard um, what was the other Tears. Uh, Tears Wish You Were Here Wish You Were Here Neighbourhood Na uh, In Your Neighbourhood and Tokyo Nights and Tokyo Nights yeah mm. the album's dedicated to Andy how much yes. has he missed Oh, a great deal. Um, I mean, it's a year now. We've, you know, six months ago, you couldn't get anything out of us to talk about Andy. But uh, he is sadly missed for this album particularly because the album's dedicated to him for one reason, and that he was supposed to join us on this album. And the four of us would have made this album together uh, as being one. 
and hence the title one for all and all for one and also all one mind thinking the same thing and uh, and feeling the same things but unfortunately um, it, it didn't happen so uh, we miss him in that way I like to see his face on the front with us as well but you know it just didn't happen you know it's just unfortunately one of those things Robin what do you think he'd have thought of this album Oh, I think he would have liked the album very much. Yeah. He was, he was a great, funnily enough, he was a great fan of ours. And he, he, he loved our music. And I think he was always afraid, in himself, of, of, I think he was always thought he was competing. And I think he was a little afraid that he had to, he had to compete and that he always thought he had to fight for our approval all the time. Mm -hmm. Which was sad, but that's what I was saying um, earlier, the fact that he was, he was quite afraid. He was very nervous about uh, proving himself against the world. So I think also too he was also uh, when he did his earlier stuff we were always helping him out either writing the songs with him producing him so forth and I think this time you see he was working with different people and we weren't involved we did four songs together finished the vocals and everything and, and we just have to mix them now uh, in Miami Beach and, and then he came over to England he was working with strangers he, he was always used to working with us and we'd like sort of me really working with somebody else after working with Darren Robin all these years and starting off fresh and hoping I can do the same. Well, these writers are expecting more from me because I'm a Gib, and you know, and I'm Andy Gib or whatever. And he, I think he, I don't think he could do that. And I think one way we should have said, oh, forget it, let's all work together, Andy. But then we'd have people saying, oh, we don't want him to sound like the Bee Gees. We want him to have his own identity and all that. Um, so we were sort of left on the outside, if you like. And I don't, I think he resented them doing that to him, mm. in a way, as well. You're going on tour now. Will he be very much in your thoughts as you sing those oh, songs yeah. from one? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, do, was there any particular song that might... I Wish You Were Here is the song that we've actually dedicated on the album to Andy and it's written for him. Right. Morris, why, why so long since the last tour? Well, only because we, after the fever period and the spirits, uh, we did a tour in 79 in America. Unfortunately, we didn't do Europe or England, which we should have done. But unfortunately, by the time we finished that tour, we were absolutely shattered. We'd been working strongly for like four solid years and touring and recording and filming and by that time it was such a saturation point that we, we felt that it's time to give the Bee Gees a rest. So after the American tour of 79 and in those days too the stage setup and, and the take across overseas and all that was such an expensive thing, it was huge and you just couldn't do it in those days. Now you can, things are a lot more technology wise, you know, a lot easier to pack up and move, you know, mm. where in those days you didn't have that. So. Uh, that's another reason too and also we had family you know bring up some our family as well and our children but we did take that rest from the Bee Gees and just work and produced and wrote for other people which brought we wanted to broaden our writing we wanted to produce other people we wanted to be involved in that side of it and uh, that's what we did and very successfully too you know mm -hmm. so we we got a managed to get another novella every year so that was nice <laughs> Robin how do you think you'll be feeling before you go on stage for the first time in 14 15 years very excited Mm. Yeah, the old adrenaline will be going. Mm -hmm. um, I can't say I'll be terrified, but I'll certainly be excited. Yeah. Mm. Now, one of your favourite countries is Germany to visit. What, why is yeah. it so special to you? Well, the, we have a very strong, loyal following to the Bee Gees in Germany. It was probably one of the first countries too that the Bee Gees had really big success in, mm. in terms of impact. And I think that's really carried down through the years to the young generation, because the generation that are buying our in Germany today. Um, are just as excited about BG music as the generation that the first ones were buying, uh, the first records. So we're excited about that. We have a special feeling towards Germany because I think Germany is responsible for a lot of the mainstay of the Bee Gees in the world today, and it's carried that through. It's been a sort of backbone of our career. 
Mm. What percentage of your audience have stuck with you since the very beginning? Oh, I, I, it's hard to do, define that really. I mean, all I know, the amount of fan letters we get from all over the world, uh, from things we've done in the past up to now, it's a very wide spectrum. I, I, I couldn't say who's not liked us anymore and who has, uh, or who stayed with us, but I'd say Europe mostly has been very loyal yeah. to us and everything we've done. Uh, America can change its ba uh, mind overnight and, uh, and change it again the next night. Uh, they're very fickle and they tend to stick to an image and pigeonhole you and things like that. And if you're not within a certain formula, you don't get played on the radio, you don't get shown yeah, on over TV. There it's, about, it's not about music over there, yeah. it's about advertising and revenue. Uh, they change their uh, they change their formulas, as Morris said, according to that uh, what the advertisers want. But as that that changes overnight. But the fact about what is what I like about Europe, it's still at the point where people act on gut reaction. If they like something, they'll go with it, um, and it's simply based on they like it. They'll, but they'll be fair. The fact of the matter is, it's still uh, to the point where people like still like a lot of melody here, uh, even through rap and stuff like that. In Europe, people still go for melody, and I, I still think it's a more melody-orientated market than America is. America makes, or has made in the past, some fine records with a lot of influence from Britain. They've made some good records. They've had their, they, they, in the 70s, I thought Americans were making great records. They, their melodies were better. They were much more sophisticated than the British records, but they lacked the raw energy of the British records, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But what's happened in the 80s is it's reversed. The British, although there have been great records coming out of Britain, the raw energy and direction and innovation has been far ahead of America. And it showed America where to go, when in the 80s they didn't know where to go. America is not making as many good records in the 80s as the British are. And even though it's been few and far between, the British have come up with some really big records in the States. They've broken, in Britain, they break artists which would, could never be broken in America because America doesn't allow for breaking artists. So American artists have had to go to England to be broken because in England, yeah. we actually play records which American radio won't touch themselves a barge for. Not because they're good or bad, but because it doesn't suit their, their, uh, well, their playlist. It's it, like Terence Trent Derby, Tracy Chapman, Tracy Chapman, all those people had to come over here to break it to make it big in America. That's right, and then they go back and breed the fruits. The fact of the matter is, they don't have, they have, uh, what are they, in American radio is, uh, what is it, um, when they was fragmented, what is it they have, when you, like if it's all black playlist, or all country, or it's all categorised. It's famous, it's, yeah. there's a name for it though. It's a pigeonhole. No. Uh, it's, uh, segregated. No, it's, there's a, in other words. Divided. Format radio. Oh, said yeah, it's format, format radio. Yeah. Everything has a format. It's either AC, mm. pop, country, R&B. And they can't accept a record. Now, to me, pop music is a mixture of any kind of music you want. It could be a mixture of jazz, soul, reggae. If you want to, pop music has no license. How could you categorize Strawberry Fields forever? In the old days, everything, anything went. Mm. The American radio has become so formatted that it's hard to make a pop record anymore. Mm. So you have to say, you have to do one thing or the other, and then you can only break it on one format, and then you've got to cross over. Mm. When you release the record, they actually say, now which format are we going to go for on this? Mm. Are we going to go AC, which is adult contemporary? Mm. Are we going to go MOR, middle of the road? Mm album-oriented rock, black, country, pop, or CHR, which is contemporary hit radio. And they have all these different formats, but as you say, how can you put Eleanor Rigby next to Strawberry yeah. Fields? Mm. Well, Eleanor Rigby must be AC, if you like, adult contemporary, or middle of the road type now, of they, like now, little song. You see, these days, they're doing all this now, and it's very hard to make a record that people can sit down and say, you know, in America, at record companies, it's very hard to sit down and say, that's a smash. They have to think, what format is it? 
mm-hmm. because and if it doesn't fit any pulpit, say it's so many things together, it's no pulpit. It goes right down the middle. How do we sell it? Mm-hmm. Just, this is what happened with Tracy Chapman. This is what happened with their uh, Terence Trent Derby. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't find the pulpit for it because mm-hmm. I, but when Terence Trent Derby before he broke in the states, I was mm-hmm. at a big station in LA, and he was saying, "What about this Terence Trent Derby guy? Mm-hmm. Who is he? He's big in England. Was, they're trying to break him here. I mean, he hadn't made the charts at that point. Mm-hmm. What's he doing in the world?" The music he's playing, I mean, so soul music. I said, well, what's the matter with soul? It's great. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, but that's that's 60s. That's so. I have music at any period, great, is great forever. And mm-hmm. if it's good music, it doesn't matter. You see, because they're quick to pigeonhole it because it sounded like 60s formula. Mm-hmm. But it was a good formula, and it could work any time. And the fact is, the guy had a great voice. Mm-hmm. But you see, the thing is, there was no way that they could find to play him. I suppose Tracy Chapman would be uh, formatted as folk. Mm. You know, and I said, well, why don't you play him anyway? And he said, well, because this is not an oldie station. Mm. We don't play 60s music. I said, but he's a new artist, mm. and he's playing new songs. Mm. That's the difference. And he said, oh, yeah, but it's an old sound. So you see, they can't, they can't break it up. This is what they're mm. thinking like over there now, and it's not very healthy. Here, we play it because it sounds we have gut reaction. Mm. Play it, and it goes on the radio, and people hear it, and they decide. And that's how these people are broken. And we break them for America. And America reaps the fruit. We broke, we broke a lot of major artists here, I mean George Michael, a lot of the artists here have been broken mm. and people may moan about radio or the, the media here being a little behind America in terms of technology and, and the amount of stations that we have, but we do have a better, we are more even-handed and we are very fair about artists who would never get a look in in the States and, and America still reaps the fruits of it and still take advantage of those artists when they come to the light here. Let's talk about the uh, the album first. What, what okay. particular aspects of the album are you keen on? I'm keen on the romantic side of it. I like I like uh, I like romance in songs much more than anything else. I like the R and B side of songs, but I think that I think that all kinds of music have good and bad. So mm. it doesn't necessarily have to be an R and B song for me to like it. Um, I love folk music as well, and there's a folkish attitude in this album as well. And and I, what I like is the romantic, warmer side of it. It's uh, the last album wasn't as warm as this. Didn't have as much emotion. You know. Your favourite track is Tears, as yeah. is mine. W- what's so special about that for you? I don't know. Um, from the moment it was written, I knew it was special. I don't know if it's a single or not. I can't honestly say that, that that's a hit record. Or, uh, but th- then again, a lot of my favourite songs aren't hit records. You know, They're songs that seem to have a good thought, a strong thought about them. You know, and I think that it says something like there will be tears no matter what. And it refers to Annie. It refers to uh, the sad side of anyone's life, you know. But it's not all good, and you've got to live with both sides, you know. It's a balance. When you're on tour singing these songs, are you yeah. going to have Andy very much in mind? Do you think? Yeah, I suspect that will always be the case with me, um, uh, because I find myself going through some doing things that I used to do with Andy, so it'll always mm. come back, you know. Um, and I think on tour, he used to join us on stage at a certain time of the show. Um, uh, on the American tour, especially in 1979, he would always come on about the uh, last two or three songs and do them with us, and the crowd used to love it. And, uh, and they were great moments, and uh, I suspect that I'll miss that. Is that when it's going to get to you, do you think? Yeah, but it gets to me, it gets to me sometimes when I'm on my own when I'm on my own, not, not when I'm necessarily on stage, because you can be lost when you're on stage, you can just be somewhere else altogether. And you don't think of yourself, see I, I'm a different person on stage, I'm not the same person, I think you change, it's like when you're acting. Uh, it's a performance and you don't think straight, you don't think um, about whether you might be missing somebody or not, but I'm sure it'll hit me, I know it will. Um, it's other times, you know, especially when I'm playing tennis, believe it or not, you know. 
Is that something you want to get across to the audience? You're going to try and you're going to deprive them of it and deliberately keep it to yourselves, or what? The, the, the whole tragedy of Andy. I don't think so. I think I think that we'll dedicate a song to Andy on stage and sing that song. You know, in fact, it may be "Wish You Were Here." Yet we haven't rehearsed it, so we're not quite sure. Hmm. Yeah. How, how are you feeling about the tour? You haven't toured for 15 years. Are you going to be quite nervous? Do you think? Yeah. Um, or I always get very nervous before going on stage, and I always get nervous even at rehearsals. Um, I think there's always a part of me that wonders if I can do it again, you know. And then I always feel like, wow, I got away with it, you know. And when I, it's like when we, when, when, if I've written a song that's a hit, I always think, Jesus, you know, they didn't, they didn't catch me that time, they didn't twig me that time, I escaped, I got away with another one. When are they going to find out that I really can't do it, you know? And it's that side of me that that um, maybe it's a lack of security or a lack of um, or, or a feeling of inad inadequacy that that we all perhaps share, you know. Yes, you sound quite surprised at your own success at times. I always am. Uh, I was overwhelmed at the fever period. I just mm. I never dreamed that those things could happen to us. But um, you have a dream, but you never quite think it's going to be like that. And uh, and it still does that to me. I'm I'm just as shocked at every hit record we have. And it always reinstates us, it always reaffirms that we were doing the right thing, we should keep doing it, you know. Now when you're doing this tour, are you going to do all the oldies like Saturday Night Fever and everything else? Well, we're not going to do Night Fever, the song Night Fever, because it's strictly disco and we're really not a disco group. So it's one song where we don't want to enforce the disco image. We, we, you know, Staying Alive, yes, we'll do that, and How Deep Is Your Love, and, um, and a cross-section of everything. We'll cover um, the, the mid-60s right up to now. You Which know. one is your favourite to, to be sung? Favourite on stage right now for me is uh, How Deep Is Your Love. It sounds really nice. The groove is sounding... It's just we never did it in the last tour. It's mm. the first time we've ever rehearsed it for stage and it sounds wonderful. And there are like jive talk and I love doing on stage. Um, you know, certain songs you really enjoy doing. To Love Somebody I enjoy doing. When you look out across the audience and you see, think all those people have come there to see you, what's that mm. like? I always question it. I always wonder, maybe they came for another reason, and we just happened to be here. You know, um, it's overwhelming um, that all these people paid for a ticket to see us, and it's a great feeling because we're often very criticised. We're a very criticised group. There's a lot of people out there um, have chalked us off at certain times. You know, especially the media, and uh, and it's so fulfilling to see that these people cared enough to come and see us, and, and we're in, are interested in our music. And that's the key, having people that want to hear your music. It doesn't matter what, what you look like, whether you're getting on, whether you're young or old. Um, the fact that our music has meant something to them. It's like somebody coming up with 25 albums to sign. The fact they've bought every album you made, you know, is, uh, is uh, very, very nice, very nice. What is it that, what's the feeling like on stage there? What is the sort of buzz that you get on stage? Well, <laughs> it's very hard to describe, very hard to describe, very exciting and it's like you and the audience become one ah. <laughs> gosh <laughs> um, you've said it now explain it <laughs> um, uh, that's how it feels it feels like you all become one together if the audience is on your side mm. you know you get this unity and it's fantastic um, towards the latter end of the show as the show gets more and more warmed up and people start to stand up and join you and, uh, uh, and it's a rush it's very spiritual actually do you find it very hard to come down afterwards? Yes. I find it very hard to sleep afterwards or to unwind. What do you do it takes after me about two hours? Well, I, I like to watch television. Um, 
sit with Linda, watch television, maybe about an hour or two. I'll get to sleep about two if I've done a show. Um, if uh, on a normal night, I'll get to sleep about one o'clock. But uh, it's very hard to unwind. Now, I know one of your biggest audiences is in Germany. What's so special yeah. about Germany? Why do you think they love you so much? I don't know, but we feel the same way about them. It's not, we've been, we've been, we toured Germany about 15 years ago, and uh, it was an unforgettable experience. Um, they're very warm towards us, very loyal towards us. They have all our records. I can't speak for all Germans, you know, but, um, but they, they appear to have stuck with us over the last 20-odd years, you know. Can you speak German? No, I'd love to be able to speak German. In fact, this year I made up my mind that that's what I would try and do, learn, learn the language, you know. If you're going to have another language in your life, you know, that would be the one for me. Where are you going to go in Germany, and, and what are you going to do when you're there, when you're not actually in concert? Well, I'm going to see historical sites. Um, it's very important for um, my children, while they're with me, and they're going to be with me in places like that, that they see something... Uh, of historical value um, because we promised their principal in America that that's what we would do uh, that when we were in France we would go and see the Louvre Louvre is it the Louvre um, and I want to go and see that too and all the famous monuments and I think Germany has a lot of great monuments and um, I th yeah that's important what about your Wembley concerts are you particularly looking forward to those as well yes probably more nerve wracking than any of the others because uh, because England is such um, how can I put it they're very critical, British people. They're very hard to please, and um, and uh, if you're not up to scratch, they're certainly the fast, fastest one people to let you know. You know. Does that make you more determined to yes. satisfy them? Yes. That's why it's at the end of the European leg as opposed to the at the beginning. Because by the time we get to the end of the European leg, the show will really be hot. It should be ready, and uh, it'll be hard for them to criticise us. They probably still will. You know, certain critics will still have a go at us. I expect that. Now you were born in England, moved to Australia for a time, now live half in America, half in England. Yeah. Where do you feel you really belong? Hmm. Well, I, um, I feel very patriotic to England because I was born in the Isle of Man and, 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 and I left England when I was about 11 years old, so I remember a lot of my early sort of street antics with other kids and things like that, and being brought up in England to that age is uh, interesting. But I feel very strongly towards Australia, and I can never explain that. Um, I'd, I'd, I'll probably end up going back to Australia to live when I retire, because it's that it's that that country still attracts me more than anything else. What will you chaps do when you retire? I don't know. I can't foresee me retiring, but if for any reason I do, that's what I would do. Um, I, I think I'd like to go on making records, and I'd like to help younger artists um, to develop. Um, but. I like talent, so I'm not into hype. I don't want to hype young artists. I don't want to be making records with kids that can't really sing, mm -hmm. and and giving them fame that's only going to make them feel terrible later on when it doesn't last. And um, I've seen it so often. So I don't want to do that with kids. I want to find real talent and nurture that, and use my experience. And you're mm -hmm. going to encourage your own children into the business. Right? Well, I'll never discourage them. Mm -hmm. um, I, nobody, nobody could have told me what I wanted to do when I was seven years old onwards. So why would I be so um, cheeky as to assume that I can tell my kids what they should be and what they shouldn't be when they grow up, you know? I wouldn't listen to anybody, why should they? You know? They'll do what they really want to do at some stage. One last question I've always okay. wanted to ask you, how do you get such high voices all the time? Well, <laughs> it's funny you should ask me that question, and um, 